are listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. Sapphire Planet. The Wright Brothers, Orville, born August 19, 1871, and died January 30, 1948, and Wilbur, born April 16, 1867 and died May 30, 1912 were two American brothers inventors and aviation pioneers who were credited with inventing and building the world's first successful airplane and making the first controlled powered and sustained heavier than air human flight and that was on December 17, 1903. From 1905 to 1907, the brothers developed their flying machine into the first practical fixed-wing aircraft. Although not the first to build and fly experimental aircraft, the Wright brothers were the first to invent aircraft controls that made fixed-wing powered flight possible. The brothers' fundamental breakthrough was their invention of three-axis control, which enabled the pilot to steer the aircraft effectively and maintain its equilibrium. This method became standard and remains standard on fixed-wing aircrafts of all kind. From the beginning of their aeronautical work, the Wright brothers focused on developing a reliable method of pilot control as the key to solving the flying problem. This approach differed significantly from other experimenters of the time who put more emphasis on developing powerful engines. Using a small home-built wind tunnel, the Wrights also collected more accurate data 
than any other before, enabling them to design and build wings and propellers that were more efficient than any previously designed. Their first U.S. patent did not claim invention of a flying machine, but rather the invention of a system of aerodynamic control that manipulated a flying machine's surfaces. The brothers gained the mechanical skills essential for the success by working for years in their shop with printing presses, bicycles, motors, and machinery. Their work with bicycles in particular influenced their belief that a unstable vehicle like a flying machine could be controlled and balanced with practice. From 1900 until their first powered flights in the late 1903, they conducted extensive glider tests that also developed their skills as pilots. Their bicycle shop employee, Charlie Taylor, became an important part of the team, building their first aircraft engine in close collaboration with the brothers. The Wright brothers' status as inventors of the airplane has been subject to counterclaims by various parties. Much controversy persists over the many competing claims of early aviators. The Wright brothers were two of seven children born to Milton Wright, 1828 through 1917, of English and Dutch ancestry, and Susan Catherine Cormer, 1831 through 1889, of German and Swiss ancestry. Wilbur was born near Millville, Indiana, in 1867. Orville in Dayton, Ohio in 1871. The brothers never married. The other Wright siblings were named Reshlin, Lauren, Catherine, and twins Otis and Ida. In elementary school, Orville was given to mischief and was once expelled. In 1878, their father, who traveled often as a bishop in the Church of the United Brethren in Christ, brought home a toy helicopter for his two younger sons. The device was based on an invention of French aeronautical pioneer Alphonse Pinard, made of paper, bamboo, and cork with a rubber band to twirl its motor. It was about a foot long. Wilbur and Orville played with it until it broke, and then built their own. In later years, they pointed to their experience with the toy as the initial spark of their interest in flying. Both brothers attended high school, but did not receive diplomas. 
the family's abrupt move in 1884 from Richmond, Indiana to Dayton, Ohio, where the family had lived during the 1870s, prevented Wilbur from receiving his diploma after finishing four years of high school. In late 1885 or early 1886, Wilbur was accidentally struck in the face by a hockey stick while playing an ice skating game with friends, resulting in the loss of his front teeth. He had been a vigorous and athletic person until then, and although his injuries did not appear especially severe, he became withdrawn and did not attend Yale as planned. Instead, he spent the next few years largely housebound, caring for his mother, who was terminally ill with tuberculosis, and reading extensively in his father's library. He ably assisted his father during times of controversy within the Brethren Church, but also expressed unease over his own lack of ambition. Orville dropped out of high school after his junior year to start a printing business in 1889, having designed and built his own printing press with Wilbur's help. Wilbur joined the print shop, and in March the brothers launched a weekly newspaper, the West Side News. Subsequent issues listed Orville as publisher and Wilbur as editor on the masthead. In April 1890, they converted the paper to a daily named The Evening Item but it lasted only four months. They focused on commercial printing afterwards. One of their clients for printing jobs was Orville's friend and classmate in high school, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who rose to international acclaim as a groundbreaking African-American poet and writer. The Wrights printed the Dayton Tattler a weekly newspaper that Dunbar edited for a brief period. Capitalizing on the national bicycle craze, which was spurred by the invention of the safety bicycle and its substantial advantages over the penny-farthing design, the brothers opened a repair and sale shop in 1892 named the Wright Cycle Exchange later renamed the Wright Cycle Company and began manufacturing their own brand of bicycle in 1896. They used this endeavor to fund their growing interest in flight. In the early or mid-1890s, they saw newspaper or magazine articles and probably photographs of the dramatic glides by Otto Lienthal in Germany. In 1896 brought three important aeronautical events. In May, 
the Smithsonian Institution Secretary Samuel Langley successfully flew an unmanned steam-powered model aircraft. In mid-year, Chicago engineer and aviation authority Octave Chante brought together several men who tested various types of gliders over the sand dunes along the shore of Lake Michigan. And in August, Lilenthal was killed in the plunge of his glider. These three events lodged in the consciousness of the brothers so that in May 1899 Wilbur wrote a letter to the Smithsonian Institution requesting information and publications about aeronautics. Drawing on the work of Sir George Cayley, Chante, Lilenthal, Leonardo da Vinci, and Langley, the brothers began their mechanical aeronautical experimentation that year. The Wright brothers always presented a unified image to the public, sharing equally in the credit for the invention. Biographers note that Wilbur took the initiative in 1899 through 1900, writing of my machine and my plans before Orville became deeply involved when the first person singular became the plural we and our. Author James Tobin asserts, it is impossible to imagine Orville, bright as he was, supplying the driving force that started their work and kept it going from the back room of the store in Ohio to conferences with capitalists presidents and kings. Will did that. He was the leader from the beginning to the end. Despite Lilenthal's fate, the brothers favored his strategy to practice gliding in order to master the art of control before attempting motor drone flight. The death of British aeronaut Percy Pilcher in another hang gliding crash in 1899 only reinforced their opinion that a reliable method of pilot control was the key to successful and safe flight. At the outset of their experiments they regarded control as the unsolved third part of the flying problem they believe sufficiently promising knowledge of the other two issues, wings and engines, already existed. The Wright brothers thus differed sharply from more experienced practitioners of the day, notably Adder, Maxim and Langley who built powerful engines, attached them to airframes equipped with unproven control devices and expected to take to the air with no previous flying experience. Although agreeing with Lilenthal's idea of practice, the Wright saw that this method of balance and control, shifting his body weight, was fatally inadequate. 
they were determined to find something better. On the basis of observation, Wilbur concluded that birds changed the angle of the ends of their wings to make their bodies roll left or right. The brothers decided this would be also be a good way for a flying machine to turn, to bank or lean into the turn just like a bird, and just like a person riding a bicycle, an experience with which they were thoroughly familiar. Equally important, they hoped this method would enable recovery when the wind tilted the machine to one side. They puzzled over how to achieve the same effect with man-made wings and eventually discovered wing warping when Wilbur idly twisted a long inner tube box at the bicycle shop. In other aeronautical investigators regarded flight as if it were not so different from the surface locomotion except the surface would be elevated. Others thought in terms of a ship's rudder for steering, while the flying machine remained essentially level in the air, as did a train or automobile or ship at the surface of the sea. The idea of deliberately leaning or rolling to one side seemed either undesirable or did not enter the thinking of others. Some of these other investigators, including Langley and Shotney, sought the elusive ideal of inherent stability. Believing the pilot of a flying machine would not be able to react quickly enough to wind disturbances to use mechanical controls effectively. The Wright brothers, on the other hand, wanted the pilot to have absolute control. For that reason, their early designs made no concessions towards built-in stability, such as dihedral wings. They deliberately designed their 1903 first-powered flyer with anhedral or drooping wings, which are inherently unstable but less susceptible to upset by gusty crosswinds. In July 1899, Wilbur put wing warping to the test by building and flying a biplane kite that had a five-foot wingspan. When the wings were warped or twisted, one end of the wings produced more lift and the other end less lift. Unequal lift made the wings tilt or bank. The end with more lift rose while the other end dropped, causing a turn in the direction of the lower end. Warping was controlled by four cords attached to the kite. The cords led to two sticks held by the kite flyer who tilted them in opposite directions to twist the rings. In the year 1900, the brothers journeyed to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina to begin their manned gliding experiments. In a reply to Wilbur's first letter, 
Octave Chante had suggested the mid-Atlantic coast for its regular breezes and soft sanding landing surface. Wilbur also requested and scrutinized U.S. Weather Bureau data and decided on Kitty Hawk after receiving information from the government meteorologist stationed there. The location, although remote, was closer to Dayton than other places Chantenay had suggested, including California and Florida. The spot also gave them privacy from reporters who had turned the 1896 Chantenay experiments at Lake Michigan into something of a circus. Shante visited them in camp each season from 1901 to 1903 and saw gliding experiments, but not the powered flights. The Wrights based their design on their kite on full-size gliders on work done in the 1890s by other aviation pioneers. They adopted the basic design of the biplane hang glider, or double-decker as the Wrights called it, which flew well in the 1896 experiments near Chicago, and used aeronautical data on lift that Lilenthal had published. The Wrights designed the wings with camber, a curvature of the top surface. The brothers did not discover this principle, but took advantage of it. The better lift of a cambered surface compared to a flat one was first discussed scientifically by Serge George Cayley. Lilithin, whose work the Wrights carefully studied, used cambered wings in his gliders, providing the flight in the advantage over flat surfaces. The wooden uprights between the wings of the Wright glider were braced by wires in their own version of the Pratt truss, a bridged building design he used for his biplane glider. The Wrights mounted the horizontal elevator in the front of the wings rather than behind, apparently believing this feature would help to avoid or protect them from nosedives and a crash like one that killed Lilenthal. When Brazilian aviation pioneer Alberto Santos Dumont flew his 14 bis in Paris in 1906, French newspapers dubbed the tail-first arrangement a canard because of the supposed resemblance to a duck in flight. Wilbur incorrectly believed a tail was not necessary and their first two gliders did not have one. According to some Wright biographers, Wilbur probably did all the gliding until 1902 perhaps to exercise his authority as an older brother and to protect Orville from harm as he did not want to have to explain to their father, Bishop Wright, if Orville got injured. The brothers 
flew the glider only a few days in the early autumn of the year 1900 at Kitty Hawk. In the first test, probably October 3rd, Wilbur was aboard while the glider flew as a kite not far above the ground with men holding tethered ropes. Most of the kite tests were unpiloted with sandbags or chains or even a local boy as onboard ballast. They tested wing warping using control ropes from the ground. The glider was also tested unmanned while suspended from a small homemade tower. Wilbur, but not Orville, made about a dozen free glides on only a single day. For those tests, the brothers trekked four miles south to the Kill Devil's Hills, a group of sand dunes up to a hundred feet high, where they made camp in each of the next three years. Although the glider's lift was less than expected, causing most tests to be unmanned, the brothers were encouraged because the craft's front elevator worked well and they had no accidents. However, the small number of free glides meant that they were not able to give wing warping a true test. The pilot lay flat on the lower ring as planned to reduce the aerodynamic drag. As the glide ended, the pilot was supposed to lower himself into a vertical position through an opening in the wing and land on his feet with his arms wrapped over the framework. Within a few glides, however, they discovered the pilot could remain prone on the wing, head first without undue danger when landing. They made all their flights in that position for the next five years. Hoping to improve lift, they built the 1901 glider with a much larger wing area and made 50 to 100 flights in July and August for distances of 20 to 400 feet. The glider stalled a few times, but the parachute effect of the forward elevator allowed Wilbur to make a safe flat or pancake landing instead of a nosedive. These incidents wedded the rights even more strongly to the canard design, which they did not give up until the year 1910. The glider, however, delivered two major disappointments. It produced only about one-third the lift calculated and sometimes failed to respond properly to wing warping, turning opposite the direction intended, a problem later known as adverse yaw. On the trip home, after their second season, Wilbur, stung with disappointment, remarked to Orville that man would fly, but not in their lifetimes. The poor lift of the gliders led the Wrights to question the accuracy of Lilenthal's data, as well as the Smeaton 
coefficient of air pressure, which had been in existence for over 100 years and was part of the accepted equation for lift. The Wrights and Lilenthal used the equation to calculate the amount of lift that wings of various sizes would produce. On the basis of measurements of lift and wind during the 1901 glider kites and free flights, Wilbur believed correctly as tests later showed that the Smeaton number was very close to 0.0033 and not the traditionally used 60% larger number of 0.0054 which would exaggerate predicted lift. The equation was wrong. Back home, fiercely pedaling a strange-looking bicycle on neighborhood streets, they conducted makeshift open-air tests with a miniature Lilenthal airfoil and a counteracting flat plate, which were both attached to a freely rotating third bicycle wheel mounted horizontally in front of the handlebars. Because the third wheel rotated against the airfoil instead of remaining motionless, as the calculations predicted, the Wrights confirmed their suspicion that published data on lift were unreliable, and they decided to expand their investigation. They also realized that trial and error with different wings on full-size gliders was too costly and time-consuming. Putting aside the three-wheel bicycle, they built a six-foot wind tunnel in their shop and conducted systematic tests on miniature wings from October to December 1901. The balances they devised and mounted inside the tunnel to hold the wings looked crude, made of bicycle spokes and scrap metal but were as critical to the ultimate success of the Wright brothers as were the gliders. The devices allowed the brothers to balance lift against drag and accurately calculate the performance of each wing. They could also see which wings worked well as they looked through the viewing window in the top of the tunnel. Prior to beginning their wind tunnel experiments, Wilbur, at Shante's invitation, traveled to Chicago to give a speech to the Western Society of Engineers on September 18, 1901. Wilbur's speech consisted of detailed accounts of his and Orville's glider experiments at Kitty Hawk up to the fall of 1901 and was complemented by a lantern slideshow of photographs. Wilbur's speech was the first public account of the brothers' experiment. Lilenthal had made whirling arm tests on only a few wing shapes, and the Wrights mistakenly assumed the data would apply to their wings, which had a different shape. The Wrights took a huge step forward and made basic wind tunnel tests 
on 200 wings of many shapes and airfoil curves, followed by detailed tests on, 30, <clears throat> on 38 of them. The tests, according to biographer, were the most crucial and fruitful aeronautical experiments ever conducted in so short a time with so few materials and so little expense. And an important discovery was the benefit of longer, narrower wings. In aeronautical terms, wings with a larger aspect ratio, wingspan divided by cord, the wings front-to-back dimension. Such shapes offered much better lift-to-drag ratio than the broader wings the brothers had tried so far. With this knowledge and more accurate Smeaton numbers, the Wrights designed their 1902 glider. Using another crucial discovery from the wind tunnel, they made the airfoil flatter, reducing the camber, or the depth of the wing's curvature, divided by its cord. In 1901, wings had significantly greater curvature, a highly inefficient feature the Wrights copied directly from Lilienthal. Fully confident in their new wind tunnel results, the Wrights discarded Lilienthal's data, now basing their designs on their own calculations. With their characteristic caution, the brothers first flew the 1902 glider as an unmanned kite, as they had done with their two previous versions. Rewarding their wind tunnel work, the glider produced the expected lift. It had also a new structural feature, a fixed rear vertical rudder, which the brothers hoped would eliminate turning problems. By 1902, they realized that wing warping created differential drag at the wingtips. Greater lift at one end of the wing also increased drag, which slowed that end of the wing, making the aircraft swivel or yaw, so that the noise nose pointed away from the turn. That was how the tailless 1901 glider behaved. The improved wing design enabled consistently longer glides and the rear rudder prevented adverse yaw so effectively that it introduced a new problem. Sometimes when the pilot attempted to level off from a turn, the glider failed to respond to correct wind warping and persisted in a tighter turn. The glider would slide toward the lower wing, which hit the ground, spinning the aircraft around. The Wrights called this well digging. Orville apparently visualized that the fixed rudder resisted the effect of the corrective wing warping 
when attempting to level off from a turn. He wrote in his diary that on the night of October 2nd, I studied out a new vertical rudder. The brothers then decided to make the rear rudder movable to solve the problem. They hinged the rudder and connected it to the pilot's warping cradle so that a single movement by the pilot simultaneously controlled wing warping and rudder direction. Tests while gliding proved that the trailing edge of the rudder should be turned away from whichever end of the wings had more drag and lift due to warping. The opposing pressure produced by turning the rudder enabled corrective wing warping to reliably restore level flight after a turn or a wind disturbance. Further, when the glider banked into a turn, rudder pressure overcame the effect of differential drag and pointed the nose of the aircraft in the direction of the turn, eliminating adverse yaw. In short, the Wrights discovered the true purpose of the movable vertical rudder. Its role was not to change the direction of flight, as a rudder does in sailing, but rather to aim or align the aircraft correctly during banking turns, when leveling off from turns and wind disturbances. The actual turn, the change in direction, was done with roll control using wing warping. The principles remained the same when ailerons superseded wing warping. With their new method, the Wrights achieved true control in turns for the first time on October 8, 1902, a major milestone. During September and October, they made between 700 and 1,000 glides, the longest lasting 26 seconds and covering 622.5 feet. Hundreds of well-controlled glides after they made the rudder steerable convinced them they were ready to build a powered flying machine. Thus did the three-axis control evolve, wing warping for roll or lateral motion, forward elevator for pitch or up and down, and rear rudder for yaw or side to side. On March 23, 1903, the Wrights applied for their famous patent for a flying machine based on their successful 1902 glider. Some aviation historians believe, believe that applying the system of the three-axis flight control on the 1902 glider was equal to or even more significant than the addition of power to the 1903 flyer. Peter Jacob of the Smithsonian 
asserts that the perfection of the 1902 glider essentially represents invention of the airplane. In 1903, the brothers built the powered Wright Flyer 1 using the preferred material for construction, spruce wood, a strong and lightweight wood, and pride of the West muslin for surface coverings. They also designed and carved their own wooden propellers and had a purpose-built gasoline engine fabricated in their bicycle shop. They thought propeller design would be a simple matter and tended to adapt data from shipbuilding. However, their library research disclosed no established formula for either marine or air propellers and they found themselves with no sure starting point. They discussed and argued the question sometimes heatedly until they concluded that an aeronautical propeller is essentially a wing rotating in the vertical plane. On that basis, they used data from more wind tunnel tests to design the propellers. The finished blades were just over eight feet long, made of three laminations of glued spruce. The Wrights decided on twin pusher propellers, or counter-rotating to cancel torque, which would act on a greater quantity of air than a single relatively slow propeller and not disturb airflow over the leading edge of the wings. Wilbur made a March 1903 entry in his notebook indicating the prototype propeller was 66% efficient. Modern wind tunnel tests on reproduction of the 1903 propellers show they were more than 75% efficient under the conditions of the first flights and actually had a peak efficiency of 82%. This is truly a remarkable achievement considering that modern wooden propellers of today have a maximum of efficiency of 85%. the Wrights wrote to several engine manufacturers but none of them met their need for a sufficiently lightweight power plant. They turned to their shop mechanic Charlie Taylor who built an engine in just six weeks in close consultation with the brothers. To keep the weight low enough the engine block was cast from aluminum a rare practice at the time. The Wright-Taylor engine was a primitive version of modern fuel injection systems, having no carburetor or fuel pump. Gasoline was gravity-fed into the crankcase through a rubber tube from the fuel tank mounted on a wing strut. The propeller drive chains resembling those of bicycles, 
were actually supplied by a manufacturer of heavy-duty automobile chain drives. The flyer cost less than $1,000, in contrast to more than 50000 in government funds given to Samuel Langley for his man-carrying Great Aerodrome. The flyer had a wingspan of 40.3 feet, weighed 605 pounds, and supported a 12-horsepower, 180-pound engine. In camp at Kills Devil Hills, they endured weeks of delays caused by broken propeller shafts during engine tests. After the shafts were replaced, requiring two trips back to Dayton, Wilbur won a coin toss and made a three-second flight attempt on December 14, 1903, stalling after takeoff and causing minor damage to the flyer. Because December 13, 1903 was a Sunday, the brothers did not make any attempts that day, even though the weather was good. In a message to their family, Wilbur referred to the trial as having only partial success, stating, The power is ample, and but for a trifling error due to lack of experience with this machine and with this method of starting, the machine would undoubtedly have flown beautifully. Following repairs, the Wrights finally took to the air on December 17, 1903, making two flights each from level ground into the freezing headwind gusting to 27 miles per hour. The first flight by Orville at 10.35 a.m. of 120 feet in 12 seconds at a speed of only 6.8 miles per hour over the ground was recorded in a famous photograph. The next two flights covered approximately 175 feet and 200 feet by Wilbur and Orville respectively. Their altitude was about 10 feet above the ground. The following is Orville Wright's account of the final flight of the day. Wilbur started the fourth and last flight at just about 12 o'clock. The first few hundred feet were up and down as before, but by the time 300 feet had been covered, the machine was under much better control. The course for the next four or 500 feet had little but very little undulation. However, when about 800 feet, the machine began pitching again, and in one of its darts downward, struck the ground. The distance over the ground was measured to be 852 feet. The time of the flight was 59 seconds. The frame supporting the front rudder was badly broken, but the main part of the machine was not injured at all. We estimated that the machine could be put in condition for fight again in about a day or two. Five people witnessed the flights. Adam Etheridge, John T. Daniels, who snapped the famous first flight photo using Orville's pre-positioned camera, 
and William Doe, all of U.S. Government Coastal Lifesaving Crew, area businessman W.C. Brinkley and Johnny Moore, a teenage boy who lived in the area. After the flight, the men hauled the flyer back from its fourth flight. A powerful gust of wind flipped it over several times, despite the crew's attempts to hold it down. Severely damaged, the airplane never flew again. The brothers shipped it home, and years later Orville restored it, lending it to several U.S. locations for display, then to a British museum, before it was finally installed in the Estonian Institution in Washington, D.C. in 1948 as its current residence. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.